Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. We're continuing our series through the Minor Prophets, and Zechariah has, seems to be the, the hardest one, perhaps, for many people, and it was difficult for me in, in many ways of trying to figure out how to get this into a sermon, but we're going to look at Zechariah 1 through 14, so it begins on page 841. If you have a Bible, a pew Bible, you can turn to page 841. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are, are the verse numbers, so if I say Zechariah 1 verse 2... You'll see the big number one and then the small number two, and that would be the verse that I'd be referring to. So we're going to read Zechariah chapter one, verses one through six. We will not be reading the whole book in this sermon, throughout the sermon as I typically do. It takes about 35 minutes to read this whole book out loud. So um, we'll just be doing some overview here, and I'll be referring to things here and there, but I'll leave it to your own study to pick up the details and the specifics. All right. Hear God's word from Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the eighth year, I'm sorry, in the eighth month, in the second year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, turn from your evil ways and your deeds, but they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, As the Lord of armies decided to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we pray now, with your word being read, with you having spoken, and with you continuing to speak through the reading and preaching of your word, we ask that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We pray that you would soften our hearts, soften the hard parts of our heart that are resistant to you, that don't want to change. The stubbornness in certain areas of our lives, Father, we pray that you would gently uproot them. Give us eyes to see the glories of Christ, that when we see Him, we might be changed from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, you told us already through Aaron reading John 19 that Christ said on the cross, it is finished. So we don't have to work for your grace. Christ finished and purchased all the grace we will ever need, not only for conversion, but even for continuing transformation, even for listening to a sermon this morning. So we pray that we would rest on the finished work of Christ. We trust that you'll provide the grace we need now, and we look to you with expect, expectation and anticipation. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we stay positive in a world that has so much negativity? How do we stay hopeful in a world filled with hopelessness? How do we keep moving forward when there's brokenness all around us? 
How do we stay truly positive without being delusional? Some people can be positive, but they have to ignore reality just to remain positive and just keep repeating rootless, fluffy, sentimental slogans just to stay positive. It's going to turn out okay. It's all going to work out for good. It's going to be better without even knowing whether that's true or not. Just saying phrases over and over again. How do we actually have real positivity, real optimism, real hope? We face brokenness, disappointment. Not only disappointment from the outside, but disappointment in our own lives. Have you disappointed your own expectations this week? Have you disappointed yourself this week? Sin is always a disappointment if we're convicted of sin. Have you sinned this week? Not only do we have brokenness and disappointment on the outside, we have it even on the inside in our own lives. And so regularly bumping up with disappointment, we either find ways to deal with it fruitfully or we just shut down and say, I'm not going to be disappointed by it anymore. It's just the way it is. And so then we get skeptical and cynical. And then we might even reach despair and hopelessness. Or we just say, this is just the way it is. This is the way I am. This is the way the world is. This is the way my situation is. Nothing's going to change. This is just how it is. And in those moments, even though we know that God is gracious, we know God is gracious, right? Even though we know that, it doesn't feel like God's grace is really effective. We know we're supposed to say that, that God is gracious and that there are evidences of God's grace. But then when we really think about it, the evidences of God's grace are so small and our pain and problems are so big that even though God is gracious, it's ineffective grace. It's a nice thought, a little helpful thing to think about here and there, but it doesn't really deal with my issues and the problems we're facing. Zechariah is speaking to people who have returned from exile. We talked about Haggai last week, and very precisely, Haggai ministered from August to December of 520 B.C. Zechariah is on the heels of that, 519 to 516, somewhere there, a few years, a year or two or three after Haggai. Zechariah is also preaching and prophesying to that same group of exiles from Babylon and Persia who are sent back to the land to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the city, and to rebuild the temple. Remember last week we talked about Haggai telling the people, you guys live in your paneled houses, and here God's house lies in ruin. Remember, and God called them to build up the old Israelic covenant temple, the actual temple building, to build up where, where Solomon built the temple. And we apply that today by saying we are to build up the new covenant temple, the new Israelic covenant temple, namely the church. But Zechariah is, is ministering to these same people and encouraging them because the temple doesn't get finished until 516. So it's a four or five year project from 520 to 516 and Zechariah is ministering in that window and encouraging them to continue on in building the temple and continuing on in looking to the Lord God and not falling back into laziness, idolatry, or even worse, cynicism. Why would they turn in, why, maybe not worse, but um, why, would you, why would they fall into cynicism? Why would they get skeptical? I mean, they came back from exile. They were in Babylon, and then Persia took over. And now they're back in their land. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that evidence of God's grace? Right? You're back in the land. Praise God, right? But when they got back to the land, they were still skeptical and cynical. Why? If God did such a great thing of bringing them back in their land, why are they still skeptical? Why are they still cynical? Here's why. Because when they were in exile, Ezekiel... And Jeremiah prophesied wonderful things. 
Jeremiah prophesied that there would be a new covenant and that they would, have, they would have the law of God written on their hearts and that they would be loving God and that they wouldn't even need to tell each other know the Lord because they'll all know God. And yet here they are for 20 years. They've been back for about 20 years and they're still running into idolatry. That's discouraging, right? You look around, everyone's supposed to be following God and it seems like nobody's really following God. And God promised that when he brings you back to the land, he'll give you new hearts. And where's the new hearts? Not only that, Ezekiel promised not only new hearts in God's spirit, he promised a grandiose, wonderful, amazing temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. That when God would return, there would be this amazing temple and the glory of God would fill it. And now here they are for two years, now three years and four years, building a dinky temple that is not even as impressive as Solomon's, let alone the one that Ezekiel prophesied. That's discouraging. You're back in the land and people aren't on fire for God. You're back in the land and you got all these opponents from the outside, the, the, the city, city permits and things and people trying to block you from doing your work. And then not only that, you have a grand vision of a temple and you have this unimpressive, modest looking building that's starting to be erected. And you get discouraged and you think, okay, yeah, God brought us back to the land, whoopee-doo, great for that prophecy being fulfilled, but what about these other prophecies? It's still a hard life. You ever feel that way as Christians? Yeah, whoopee-doo, Christ died on the cross for sins and rose from the dead. Big deal, I still got problems in my life. We, still, we talk like that, don't we? We think like that. We might not say that out loud, but, but we do get skeptical. God has done so much for them, evidence of God's grace, and it's so little to them. And so it is with us. We get discouraged when we deal with disappointment. So here's the main goal of Zechariah, at least of this sermon, and hopefully of Zechariah. In a broken world filled with disappointment and evidences of God's grace, live hopefully. So if I had to summarize it, here's the main goal is live hopefully. Live with hope. In a broken world filled with disappointment, and evidences of God's grace, live hopefully. Now, Zechariah helps us to live hopefully. His message to those exiles who have returned, I think, is live hopefully. And he gives them, and even us today, three ways for us to live hopefully. And that would give us the, the message of the book. How, how should they live hopefully? How should we live hopefully? And they come with the three commands in the book. Uh, the first command is in verse... Chapter 1, verse 3, return to me and don't be like your ancestors. So my first thing would be turn to God, turn. So the, first, the first way you live with hope is to turn to God. The second way you live with hope is in, verse, is in chapters 7 and 8, and it's to work. Work courageously. So turn to God. Secondly, work courageously, and that's from chapter 8, verse 9, but that's going to be chapter 7 and 8. And then the rest of the book, chapters 9 through 14, the third thing will be look Look to God, or look to the kingdom, look to the future. So turn, work, and look. Turn to God, work courageously, and look to God's coming. Three ways to live hopefully in a broken world filled with disappointment. All right, let's look at the first one now. In chapters 1 through 6, turn. And I said that's in verse... Three, so let me read it again. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says. Return to who? Return to? Return to the Lord. Return to me, God says. Turn from disappointment. Turn from cynicism. Turn from sin and turn to God. 
return to God. God commands them to return to Him, and He promises in that same verse, in verse 3, and I'll return to you. You've been back in my land for 20 years. And yet, brothers and sisters, Zechariah might be saying to his fellow um, Israelites, you haven't really turned to God. You're living in the land, but you haven't really, in your heart, you haven't turned from your sins and turned to God. So return to God. Don't be like your ancestors who keep hearing God's word and experiencing God's grace situationally and around you, and yet in your heart, you don't actually turn your heart to God. If you're going to live with hope, you can't just live with hope on the outside. You have to turn your heart to God on the inside. And in this return, don't be like your ancestors. That's what they did. It was all external. It wasn't internal. And so now, in chapters 1 through 6, Zechariah gives us seven or eight visions. And so I'm going to give you nine reasons why you should turn to God. In this first thing about turning to God, nine reasons, and I'm not going to read through this. I'm going to summarize these eight visions really briefly. You're going to have to go into them yourselves. But let me encourage you before I even jump into these visions. I want to encourage you, just like when we read Revelation, so when you read these visions in the Bible, just picture it. Don't worry about what it means yet. Just sit with the image and let it just be weird to you. Just think about a flying scroll or horsemen of different horse, you know, different colored horses just all gathering together. Just when, when um, Zechariah sees these visions, picture it in your mind and just let the image sit there and then, and then prayerfully, slowly start looking towards meaning. Now, I'm not going to do that here. I'm going to kind of give you the vision real quick. I'm going to tell you what I think it means, and then we're going to move on for the sake of time. But when you read Zechariah, don't be so quick. You're not summarizing the whole book in one, in one moment, so, so read it slowly and, and let the images sit with you. But let's look at these, okay? So I'm, and in these eight visions, I'm going to give you eight reasons, and then a ninth one, on why you should turn to God. First reason why you should turn to God, turn to God because your exile will end soon. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, you could look right there in your Bible. I'm not going to read it, but he has a vision of horsemen. There's a, there's a rider and a horse, and there's more riders and more horses. And so um, a man is riding on a chestnut horse, and this man was sent by the Lord to patrol the earth. And so the, these horsemen would go out throughout the whole earth, and they'd come back and report to the Lord what they saw. And then the angel asks the Lord, Lord, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and Judah as you've been angry these 70 years? So here's the horsemen going around the earth. God, okay, you got control of the earth, but how long are you going to... Let Israel sit here without your mercy. It's been 70 years. They're back from exile. How long are they going to go without mercy? And then it says that God responds to the angel with comforting and kind words. Isn't that, isn't that like God to respond to distress with kind and comforting words? Isn't it the kindness of God that leads us to repentance? Not the harshness of God, but the kindness of God. And, and so how long until you have mercy? God speaks kindly to the angel. And then the angel pro- proclaims, Yahweh of army says this, and I'm going to summarize it here. I'm passionate for Jerusalem, okay? Seventy years in exile, I'm passionate for them. I burn with passion and zeal for them. I'm angry with the nations. Even though I sent the nations to judge Jerusalem, they went too far, and I'm angry with them now. In mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. Remember, the house is not built yet. My house will be rebuilt. My cities will overflow, and I will choose Jerusalem again. So in this image or in this vision of the horsemen patrolling the earth, God promises that the 70-year exile will end, and Jerusalem will be restored. So turn to God because the exile will end. A second reason to turn to God, at least for them, 
and then even for us. Turn to God because God will cut off your oppressors. Look at the second vision here at the end of chapter 1. Or don't, I'll tell you what it is. The second vision is this. Zechariah looks up and he sees four horns. That's weird. Just see a horn. Four horns, okay? So there's the image. He sees four horns. Now, any of you who knows Old Testament imagery or biblical imagery, when you see a horn, what should you think of? Anyone? What is a horn a symbol of? I heard someone say it. Say it again, somebody? King and power, okay? So a horn is a symbol typically, not always, but for power, and power is usually what a king holds. So, so typically when you see these visions of horns, it's usually power and a king or an authority, okay? So he sees four horns, and these horns are rulers that have scattered God's people. Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps, among others, right? Kings who have taken Israel and scattered them. These are the four horns. Then, so Zechariah just sees four horns that scattered God's people. And then he sees four craftsmen. And craftsmen can craft the horn however they want. And these four craftsmen, it says, they are the ones who have come to cut off the horns of the nations that were against the land of Judah. So you have oppressors, and then these four craftsmen cut off the horns. So what does that mean? Why should you turn to God? Because God will cut off your oppressors. If you're God's people, people will oppress you. The world will hate you, but God will cut them off. So turn to God. Don't give in to the world and be like them for, their accept, for your acceptance with them. Third, turn to God because God will move back into Jerusalem. In vision three, in chapter two, this vision, there's a surveyor, it says in the CSB notes, a man who comes to measure Jerusalem. So he's measuring the city, and then an angel declares, hey, Jerusalem will have no walls, which is strange, because if you know anything about Jerusalem and its history, it's always had what? Walls. It's had city walls. Even before David took over Jerusalem, it had city walls that they had to breach. So Jerusalem has always had walls, and now the vision says, Jerusalem will have no walls. If you don't have walls, you don't have a what? Defense against enemies. And here's the, so here's a man measuring Jerusalem in the vision. And the angel declares, Jerusalem will have no walls. So does that mean God doesn't care about Jerusalem? No, here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 5. God declares that he will be a wall of fire around it, and he will be a glory within it. So why don't you need walls? Because who's going to be the wall? God. Any better wall than God himself? Any better protection than God himself? You don't need walls anymore because God will protect you. You don't need to lift up your own glory as a city. God will be your glory in the city. That's the promise. Turn to God because he will move back into Jerusalem. God calls his, land, his people to flee the land of captivity, to go back to his land. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden. He's going to, he's, it says in chapter 2, verse 10. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. In 2.10, it says, Daughter Zion, shout for joy and be glad. Here's a command. Why? For I am coming to what? Dwell among you. When did God live with his people and walk among them? Where? In the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, there was always a barrier between God living on earth. God moved out of earth for a while, and then he came back in the tabernacle and then the temple. But even there, there's so many barriers with the court and then the holy place and then the most holy place. Before you could, you, could you actually live with God and enjoy him and dwell with him? So, I mean, he was there, but there's so many barriers to get to him. But here God says, I'm moving back in. Just like I lived in Eden, I'm moving back in with my people. I'm moving back into Jerusalem. I'm going to restore Jerusalem to you. Therefore, turn to me. Turn back to me with your heart. Not only will he save um, the Israelites, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people. Different ethnic people groups. 
Different nations. That's why Jesus told us, go therefore and disciple all nations. This is why we do missions. God will gather people from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation to himself to worship the Lamb. That's why we give. That's why we gospelize. That's why we influence each other. That's why we love our neighbors. That's why we send money and people to unreached ethnic people groups. Because God will gather many of these peoples and they will become his people. That's the third reason. That's the third reason to turn, because God will move back to Jerusalem. Fourth reason to turn to God is because God will restore a cleansed priesthood. I, I, I love this vision, vision four, so much. I thought, I need to preach a separate sermon just on this vision. And I'm going to have to hold myself back here to two minutes or less, hopefully. What happened in this fourth vision? The high priest Joshua is standing before the angel, and Satan is right beside him. Okay? So here's uh, and here, there's the high priest Joshua. The angel is, uh, not the angel, sorry, well, fallen angel. Satan is standing right beside the high priest. And here's the thing. The high priest is in dirty clothes. Now, if you know anything about the priest and the high priest, they are never to have dirty clothes on if they're in their priestly garments. They're supposed to take baths, have clean clothes. You never go to God unclean, ever. You never put on your priestly clothes in an unclean way. So here's the high priest in unclean clothes and Satan's right beside him. And what is Satan doing? He's accusing him of the dirt and the filth and the unworthiness of the high priest. Ever feel that way, guilty before God? And here's Satan pointing out all your sins, all of them, that, you, that, that, you would be, that you'd be damned before God because Satan is the great accuser. Now in that, I love this. It says the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Like the Lord uses his own name. I, I remember when like the angel, like Mark, the archangel Michael would rebuke Satan in, in the book of Judah and he says, may, may, Yah, may the Lord rebuke you. But here, even the Lord is using his own name. May Yahweh rebuke you. And that's what he does. God rebukes Satan and tells Satan basically to shut up. To shut up. Stop accusing. Why? And here's what happens after that. What does God do with, with, Zechariah, with, um, with Joshua, the high priest in this vision? He, rem- he says, take off the filthy clothes. So he takes the filthy clothes off of Joshua and then he's given clean festive robes. He's given clean clothes. And then he's given a promise. Joshua, if you walk in my ways, then you will be a blessing and you will rule over the house, my temple, as you're supposed to. Sounds like Exodus 19. If you walk in me, you'll be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. It's like the commission given to Israel in the old Israelite covenant through Moses. But here it's renewed. I'm cleansing you from your sin. You have new clothes. Now go walk in my ways. Now God promises in chapter 3, verse 8, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you, indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant. And what's the servant's name in verse 8? Chapter 3, verse 8, the what? The branch. Now the branch in Jeremiah is always tied to the Davidic king who's going to bring final righteousness and peace. And who is that? Jesus is the Davidic king, right? So here, the cleansing of the high priest and the restoring of the high priest for the temple is a sign, along with the other men around him, the other priests, it's a sign that God is going to bring his branch to bring final peace and restoration. So there's even a prophecy here that's sort of pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get this more because Joshua's given a stone, and I love this, especially as You'll know why I love this in a second. He's given a stone with seven eyes. Can you imagine that? Would you be freaked out by a stone that had seven eyeballs on it? 
yeah, you touch it and just, you know, play with it. Well, there's a, he's given a stone with seven eyeballs, and he takes a stone. You might hesitate, but Joshua took the stone. Now, when you see seven eyes, what do you think of? Anyone? Anyone who knows their Bible? Any book of the Bible you think of when you think of seven eyes? The book of what? Revelation. Jesus is the Lamb of God with seven eyes. And it's seeing everything on the earth in Revelation chapter 5. Zechariah and Revelation go hand in hand, which made this study a little bit difficult for me to hold it all together. But here again, another pointer, I would say, to Jesus. And then look at chapter 3, verse 9. You get an echo here, a preview of the gospel. So you get this stone, and then at the end of verse 9, it says, I will take away the iniquity of this land in what? At the end of verse 9. God will take away the iniquity of Israel in what? In a single day, in one day. And Aaron, when he was leading here, read John 19, he just read that single day when Christ was hanging on the cross and said, it is finished. Here you have the preview. I will take away the iniquity of my people in a single day. Christ dying on the cross for sinners. On that day, each member, it says right after that in verse 10, on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. That's you inviting people to the new earth, inviting your people, people to salvation. When, when God takes away the sins, what are the people going to do? They're going to invite other people. Come to the kingdom. Come in, sinners. You can be forgiven too. We do that as a church today, don't we? So that's the fourth, the, the fourth reason. Uh, f- fifth reason to turn to God is because God ensures that his servant will complete the temple. God ensures that the temple will be completed. So what does he see in the, in the fourth vision? He sees a golden lampstand and two olive trees there. The, um, he sees a golden lampstand, there's a bowl, there's seven lamps, there's two olive trees beside the bowl. And then he says in chapter four, verse six, a very famous passage. So let's read it because it's very encouraging. It encouraged me in my study this week. So he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. He's the Davidic heir who's going to build the, the, the temple, rebuild the temple. How is, how is Zerubbabel going to build a temple? Not by strength or by might, but how? By my spirit. How, do you, how is Zerubbabel, Davidic descendant, going to rebuild the temple? How are we going to build up the temple, the people of God? How do you build the church? How does the gospel spread to the nations and to southeast LA? Not by might, not by strength, not by cleverness, not by theological degrees and acumen, not by marketing strategies for the church, not by might, not by strength, but by God's Spirit. Submitting to God's Spirit, being filled by God's Spirit and filled with the Spirit's Word, the Scriptures, and with Christ Himself for us today in the New Covenant. And then one of my favorite verses here, for who despises the day of small things? It seems like a small thing to build this dinky little temple. But don't despise it. It's pointing to something greater. So turn to God because the temple will be complete. A a, a sixth reason to turn to God. Turn to God because God will curse all of those from the other houses. In the sixth vision, in chapter 5, there's a flying scroll. And the flying scroll has the sins of the people on it. And it's basically, imagine you see a flying scroll and it has your name on it with all your sins on it. That's the curse. So you got a flying scroll flying around the whole world to condemn the world for their sins and their lack of turning to God. That's the, fifth, that's the sixth vision. So why should you turn to God? Because if you don't turn to God, you're going to be cursed. Because your sins will be there and you will be held accountable for your sins. The seventh vision in 
the same chapter, chapter 5, is a vision of a woman in a basket. Oh, man, I wish I could preach on this for a long time. But, you know, sitting with these images, it's just so fun to think through them. And, and what, but So there, he, he sees a basket coming. And then there's a lead cover on the basket. And the lead cover lifts up on the basket. And lo and behold, in the basket is a woman. You know, you're like, what? Why? That's not what I was expecting, a woman in the basket. Okay. You get a woman in the basket, and then he names the woman wickedness. And then there's two women who take the basket, and they have wings, and they fly with the woman wickedness in the basket, and they fly from Jerusalem to Babylon. And that's the vision. You think, what does that mean? And Zechariah asked these questions, what does that mean? You know? Um, and here's what it means. And I wish I could, there's a lot more parallels here with the Ark of the Covenant and other things like that that I wish I could get into. But for the sake of time, what it means is that God will remove wickedness from Jerusalem and from his land and, bring, and cast it away to Babylon. Now, if you know anything about Revelation in Babylon, Babylon is a symbol for the worldliness. And then it says that, that the basket will be exalted in a, on a pedestal in Babylon. And the woman's name is wickedness. Remember the harlot in Revelation 17 who's dancing, who's drunk and drinking the blood of the saints on the dragon? It's a very, I mean, there's a lot of connections here, but the, the point here is that wickedness will be in this world and it'll be exalted in this world, but it will be removed from God's people. God's people will be preserved. So turn to God as he removes wickedness from his land and allows its exaltation in Babylon. The eighth vision, eighth and last vision, chapter six, the eighth vision, turn to God because God patrols the earth. You could read that vision. I'll skip over it for the sake of my own discipline of moving on, but read through that. It's the, the point there is that God patrols the earth. So turn to God because God is in control of the earth. And then the ninth reason, it's not a vision, but the ninth reason why you should turn to God is in chapter 6. Go to chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Now I'm going to read this whole section because I want you to see this reason why you should turn to God. And it kind of summarizes all of these. The word of the Lord came to me, chapter 6, verse 10 now. Take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go, to the, go that same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Je- Zephaniah. Take silver and gold and make a what? Make a crown. So you take an offering, take silver and gold, make a crown, and place it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he had a vision of it, and now he's telling Ze- Zechariah to actually do it. Take an offering, get money, get silver gold, take a crown, make a crown, and put it on Joshua's head. Verse 12, here's what you're to tell him. You are to tell him, this is what the Lord of armies says. Here is a man whose name is Branch. Now in Jeremiah, the branch is from the Davidic house. The king, not the priest. But here's Joshua, the priest, being called the branch. Is the branch supposed to be a king or a priest? Well, Let's read on. So, whose name is Branch, he will branch out from his place and build the Lord's temple. So, what does the branch do? He builds the temple. Yes, he will build the Lord's temple. He will be clothed in splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. There will also be a priest on his throne, and there will be peaceful counsel between the two of them. The crown will reside in the Lord's temple as a memorial to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, son of Zephaniah. People who are far off. So, so you have this priest who's called the branch who's going to rule over the temple God's house. The high priest is supposed to have the authority over the temple. So you have the branch who's the high priest. Earlier we had the branch kind of alluding to the king. And this high priest is going to build up this old covenant temple, this old Israelic covenant temple. And we know for us today, like we talked about last week from Haggai, we're to build the new Israelic covenant temple. 
the church. So what happens when this man builds, he branches out and builds a temple? Look at verse 15. People who are far off will come, and what will they do? They'll build the Lord's temple. And you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. This will happen when they fully obey the Lord your God. So this high priest will start building the temple. Zerubbabel, the Davidic descendant, is building the temple. And as they build the temple, other people are going to come and help and build the temple. You see any relevance for today for Christians? Who is the great high priest branch? Jesus. Who is the great king branch, Davidic descendant, who brings final peace and restoration? Jesus. Who is the one who builds his church? Jesus. And when Christ builds his church, does he not bring people from far away to come and help build his church? Isn't that what each of you, 88 other members, besides myself, 89 together, isn't that what each of us, 89 members, do? God has brought you from wherever you've come from to come to gather around the branch, Jesus Christ, the high priest and Davidic son, to build his new covenant temple. That's what we do. And that's why we turn to God. Because God will crown his high priest, the branch, and the branch will build the temple, and people will come and build the temple with him. And that's what we do even today. So when you're disappointed, turn to God. That's, the, that's point number one. In disappointment, how do you live hopefully? Turn to God. When you're disappointed, heartbroken, in pain, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth, the disappointments, brokenness, hopelessness, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Christian, trust God's promises when you can't see through your disappointment. Trust God's promises by faith. Church family, we gather every Sunday to point each other to who? To Jesus, to turn to God together. That's what we do as a church when we hear Scripture hear a sermon, sing, pray, greet one another. When we see baptism, we see the Lord's Supper, when we meditate on preaching, we are a community that's continually turning to Jesus. If you're not a Christian, where do you turn when you're disappointed? Who do you turn to? Where do you find hope in the midst of hopelessness? You can have all of these promises if you'll come to Christ. Forgiveness of sins. Life everlasting. A purpose of building up the temple with Jesus. God's presence in the new kingdom forever and ever and ever. If you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, who died for sinners and rose from the dead. Children, what should you do? Do what, everyone else, what I'm telling everyone else to do. It's just good to tell children directly. Turn to Jesus. He'll save you. Turn to Jesus, children. God will save you and help and use you to help build the temple. So in a broken world filled with disappointment and evidences of God's grace, how do we live hopelessly? First of all, by turning to God. And I gave you nine reasons. Secondly, not only turn, but work. Look at chapters seven and eight. Chapters seven and eight we get the command in verse 9 of chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. Here's the command. The Lord of armies says this, Let your hands be strong, you who now hear the words of the prophets spoke 
um, when the foundations were laid for the rebuilding of the temple, the house of the Lord of armies. And then you get the command again in verse 13. Look at verse 13 of chapter 8. As you have been a curse among the nations, house of Judah and Israel, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Here's the command. Don't be what? Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. So what's the command here? I said, work courageously. To, to let your hands be strong means to keep working. Don't get discouraged. Keep working. Keep building. Keep rebuilding the temple. Keep rebuilding the society. Keep doing it. Don't stop. Don't get weak. Be strong. Let your hands be strong. Let your work be strong. Build up the church today. Build up the temple back then. Whether old or new covenant temple, build up the temple with strong hands. Be decisive. Be active. Take initiative. Fulfill your desires for good in building up the people of God. Now, what does that mean? Look at verse 16. What does it mean to work courageously? What are you supposed to be working to do? Verse 16. These are the things you must do to work courageously. Speak truth to one another. Is it sometimes scary to speak the truth to somebody else? Yes or no? Yes, right? So let your hand be strong. Don't be afraid. Speak truth to one another. Secondly, make true and sound decisions within your city gates. As you make decisions for the covenant community, does that take courage? Are some decisions hard to make as a leader that affects your whole society, your whole community? Yes, but make the wise and right decisions. Church family, when you do, I'll just apply it to you, when we take, take in new members or don't take in new members, you have to make a wise and sound decision, don't you? When we bring up the budget, we're going to hopefully bring up the budget on November 17th at our next members meeting. Be here at 3.30 to make the decision. Make a sound decision. Don't be afraid to speak your mind. If you disagree, then disagree. If you agree, then agree. Don't be afraid to disagree with each other. Speak the truth in love. We don't need people silently saying, I don't want any arguments, so I'm not going to say my opinion. Think, take God's word into your heart, speak the truth courageously, and build up the church. We don't need passive members in this church. We need active members who work hard and are working with strong hands and not being afraid of saying the right thing at the right time or making the right decision, the hard decision at the right time. Let's go on. What else, is, what else does it mean to work hard and work courageously? Verse 17, do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor and don't love perjury for I hate all this. And then in chapter, or in verse 19, therefore, the very end of verse 19, therefore love, truth, and peace. So if you're going to build up the church today, new covenant temple, in the old covenant temple, if you're going to build up the old covenant temple in Zerubbabel and Zechariah's day, if you're going to do this, do it with strong hands. Love justice is basically what it's saying among the covenant community. Pursue justice. Speak the truth. Make the right decisions. Seek justice, not just for yourself, not just for your family, but for your whole community, for your whole society. And back then, the covenant community is the society. Today, it would be the new covenant community, firstly, the church, and then love our neighbors. And because we are in this nation, we have votes, so we are part of the political process. We make decisions in this, in this nation. So that, too, we need to make sound and wise decisions of justice. But the point here is not primarily to the nation. That's a side application. The main application is work courageously in building up the church. Pursue justice and righteousness in the church. Doesn't righteousness happen in churches? 
No, not in, not in churches, right? There's no unrighteousness in churches. There's no injustice in churches. There's no oppression by leaders or other members. There's no sin that, are, that snuck in. There's no people being scared to confront another per- person and call out sin and exercise church discipline. That doesn't happen in churches, does it? No, it does, right? Even in churches like this, even in churches that are maybe done with revitalization, but we still have sin. We still got unrighteousness in our own hearts. We still got to make decisions. Still got to disciple and encourage each other today, as long as it is still called today, so that we're not hardened by sin's deception. So work courageously. Now, in this passage, in chapter 7 and 8, and I think for the sake of time, I'm just going to state them. You're going to have to, and I'll give you the verses. You're going to have to look it up later, okay? I want to keep moving. Let me give you here in 7 and 8 six reasons, and don't worry if you don't write them all down. I know I'm going fast. That's why it's recorded, okay? I could send you my notes if you want. But just write down what's encouraging for your own soul if you're taking notes. Let me give you the six reasons why you're to work courageously. Number one, work courageously because your ancestors were cowardly in their fasting and religiosity and injustice. That's chapter seven. In chapter seven, they're saying, Lord, should we fast? And God said back to them, why do, why, why do you want to fast? You know why you guys wanted to fast? You wanted to fast so that you could do your religious duty, check off that box while, still, while, while you're still unrighteous. In other words, you're a hypocrite. You just do religious works just to check off the box that you went to church and you prayed and then you keep living your life ignoring God unrighteously. So what's the first reason why you should work courageously? Because God doesn't care about you checking the boxes of your religiosity. So work courageously. Don't be cowardly like your ancestors were. Chapter, or the second reason is chapter eight, verses one through eight. Work courageously because God is passionate. God says, I am passionate for my people. I will restore my city, so work to build it up. A third reason why you should work courageously is because God saves and blesses. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. As you have been a curse among the nations, house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, so God will save them, and you will be a what? You'll be a what? Say it out loud. You'll be a what? A blessing. You'll be a blessing. Why should you work courageously? Because God will make you a blessing. He will make you a blessing. And then a fourth reason why you should work courageously is because God is good. In in verse 14, God promises to do good to his people. Fifthly, work courageously because the feast is coming. I know you were fasting in the past, but there will be feasting. There will be joy, gladness, and feasting. That's chapter 8, verse 19. Times of joy, times of gladness, and cheerful festivals for the house of Judah. That's a little echo to the new earth. Remember, when we take communion, we'll take communion tonight, the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about the cup, and Jesus says about the cup, that's the new covenant in his blood, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you anew in the Father's kingdom. So there will be feasting. There will be joy. There will be partying. There will be celebrating and hanging out and connecting, and it will be a party in the new earth when Christ returns. So that's why we work courageously now. A sixth and last reason why we work courageously is in verses 20 through 23, and it's because all ethnic people groups will be saved. People from all ethnic people groups will be saved. Look at verse 23. The Lord of Army says this, as you're building up the temple, in those days, in those last days, 10 men from the nations, those are Gentiles, 10 men from nations, from Gentiles, of every language will what? Will grab the robe of a Jewish man tightly, urging, I love this imagery, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. That's what's going to be happening as people get saved. They, they find out people who really love God and they, they grab onto their robe and say, let me go with you. 
God is with you, and I want that favor too. So we share the gospel, we love our neighbors, and people see God in us, some, some neighbors do, grab on us from every nation, every language. God is with you, take me with you to God. That's why we work courageously to build the temple, because God will save people from every language. So application here, Christian, as a member of this church, be strong and don't be afraid as you move this church toward righteousness and joy. Church members are church movers, at least they ought to be. Church members are church movers. Move this church toward Christ. Church family, let's be flexible to building up this church. Be flexible to the other members who are moving this church. Be flexible with the pastors who are leading this church. Christ is building this church, is He not? Christ is building church. Do we have to worry about our ways always being done in this church? No. So here's the application to the church. If you're going to let everyone else build this church and let the pastors lead this church, you have to hold your preferences with a loose hand if you're going to work courageously. Share your opinion. Share what you think, especially if you think it's a biblical conviction, but then hold it with a loose hand because if all 89 members are going to work to build this church, we're going to have to have a lot of give and take amongst each other, and that's a good thing for all of us. If you're not a Christian, what are you working for? Christians are working to build up the temple for God's glory among the nations in local churches. If you're not a Christian, what are you working for? What's your purpose in life? I wonder if that purpose is really satisfying. I wonder if that purpose really gives you hope in this world. Children, here's how you build the church. You know children can build up this church too? Children, how should you build up this church? Here's how you do it. Number one, children, build friendships with other children in the church. Some of your best friends, hopefully, will be friends that you know since childhood in church. That's a good thing. Secondly, though, build relationships and friendships with adults in this church. Always with your parents' knowledge. But build up friendships with the adults in this church as well. And that's a challenge to you adults to build friendships with the children. If you're discouraged because our church and churches are not doing as well as they ought to be doing, let me encourage you, the church will always be in process until Christ comes. There are not only evidences of grace in this church, there's evidences of the need for grace, right? There's evidence of where we can grow, failures in this church, failures among me and Ben as pastors. And we want to keep growing. So don't be discouraged. Just get used to it. Not used to the problems. Let's keep solving new problems and these current problems and new problems will come. But get used to the fact that there will always be problems in the church. Let's just keep moving and trusting God. Okay, so how do we live with hope? In a disappointing world, firstly, by turning to God, secondly, by working courageously to build up the temple, the new covenant temple for us, and lastly, look, chapters 9 through 14. Look to God, chapters 9 through 14. And in here, you have really two, two oracles. Chapters 9 through 11, the first three chapters is one message, and chapters 12 through 14 is the second oracle. So you got these two oracles, and um, I love what... Um, Mark Dever has said when he, when he looked at these, at these two oracles, he, he noticed a pattern here, and here's the pattern. Both oracles begin with judgment on the nations. Then they, then they move to the, the, the deliverer, the savior, the king, who's going to save them, the people of God. And then, so those are the two similarities. Then at the, the last thing, they're different. In the first oracle, this savior king is rejected. 
in the second oracle, the Savior and the King is exalted among all nations, and it's the, the, the final end is realized. I love that. I just, that's, that's really the life of Christ, isn't it? Judgment on the nations, a king who comes to save, and yet first he's rejected, and then later he's exalted. And so let's look at those just briefly here as we look at these two. So, so first, uh, um, two, two things to look at when you're looking to God. First of all, in chapters 9 through 11, look to the humble king for restoration. In chapter 9, there's a list of judgments on the nations. And then you get to, after the list of judgments on the nations, look at chapter 9, verse 9. I want you to read this with me. Chapters 9, verse 9 and 10. These are sweet verses. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look. There's a command. Look. Why? Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Great, the king is going to come. But listen, he's humble and riding on a what? Riding on a what? On a donkey, on a colt, and the foal of a donkey. The king is coming, righteous and victorious, riding on a donkey. Does that remind you of any story in the Bible? The triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives, riding on a donkey. And the people come out saying, Hosanna. And what does Hosanna mean? Save us. Son of David, save us. The king has come to save us. And so they're expecting Jesus to come into Jerusalem to save them. And he did, but not the way they expected. Because on that Sunday he came in, on that Friday he was hanging on a cross, crucified. But Jesus came. and says in chapter 9, verse 16, the Lord will save them on that day as the flock of his people. The shepherd will come and, and get his sheep. Why? Because in John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep Jesus is the king who came hum humble, came on a Sunday to rule, and died on that Friday to save his people, to lay down his life for his sheep. And so God will restore his people. In chapter 10, uh, verses 6 through 12, 12, we see that God will restore his people. He will redeem them. It's a second exodus, just like, look at chapter uh, 10, verse 11. The Lord will pass through the sea of distress. That sounds like the Red Sea. And strike the waves of the sea. All the depths of the Nile will dry up. There's Egypt called into this imagery. The pride of Assyria will be brought down. So it's not the first exodus. It's the second exodus. And so just like God took them out of Egypt powerfully to redeem them, God will take them out of exile in Babylon and even the spiritual exile that we are in today. God will deliver and redeem their people, His people from sin and from exile back to His place. God will redeem. And in chapter 11 we see that this good shepherd will be rejected. Look at chapter 11 in verses 4 through 17. We have two shepherds. Look at chapter 4, four verse 4. The Lord said, God said this, shepherd the flock intended for the slaughter. And then in verse, uh, verse let's see, verse 7. So I shepherded the flock. So God tells Zechariah to shepherd the flock. So I shepherded the flock intended for slaughter. So there's a good shepherd. He shepherds the flock intended for slaughter, the oppressed of the flock. So he shepherds them. I took two staffs, one staffs um, calling one favor and the other union, and I shepherded the flock. In one month, I got rid of three shepherds. Again, some good shepherding there. I became, but then what, what happened to this good shepherd? I became impatient with my sheep, and they also what? Detested me. Then I said, here's what the good shepherd said. 
I will no longer shepherd you. Let what is dying die, and let what is perishing perish. Let the rest devour each other's flesh. So here's the good shepherd trying to shepherd his people. Do they want to be shepherded? No. So he says, I can't shepherd you. Verse 10, next I took my staff called favor. I cut off, cut it in two, and I annulled the covenant. I took back the, I broke the covenant. I annulled the covenant, the Israelite covenant. That's the old Israelite covenant. And then what happened after that? It was annulled on that day, and so look at verse 12. Look at 12 and 13. Verse 12 says this, so, so um, then, then I said to them, if it seems right to you because I'm quitting my job as shepherd, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. Okay, so he says, I quit. You want to pay me my wages? And then listen to the wages they paid to this good shepherd who quit. So they weighed my wages, and what was the, what was the price? Say it out loud. How, what was the price? 30 pieces of silver. What does that sound like? The good shepherd rejected and so they pay him out. What, do they, what's it, what is he worth? 30 pieces of silver. And then verse 13, what does he say with this silver? Throw it to the potter, the Lord said to me. This magnificent price, I was valued by them. So there's God talking about he's the one who's being valued. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. Huh. The good shepherd rejected, sold for 30 pieces of silver. Look to, the, look to the king who's going to save his people. And how does he save his people? The good shepherd is rejected, sold for 30 pieces of silver to die on the cross for sinners like you and me who deserve damnation. And then you get to chapter 12. So that's in the first one. So look to, look to um, the humble king who's rejected. But then in, in the next part, in 12 through 14, look to the pierced God who was struck. Let's just jump straight down to 12 verse 10. Then I'll pour out my spirit pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me. This is God speaking. They will look at me, whom they have what? Pierced. They're going to pierce God. Wow. Israel will pierce God. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly as the one who weeps for the firstborn. When was God pierced? Aaron read it. On the what? On the cross. And we sang it. I don't know if you saw it. But we sang that in, lo, he comes with clouds descending. Verse 2, every eye shall now behold him robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at naught and sold him. Just talk about selling him, right? 30 pieces of silver. They sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree. But what does it say here in verse 10? That they will mourn. They will see the God they pierced and they will mourn. So what does it say here? That they, every eye will see him deeply wailing, deeply wailing. Deeply wailing, every eye shall the great Messiah see. Who is the God that they pierced? The Messiah, Jesus Christ, on the cross, dying for sinners. If you're not a Christian, please understand this message. Here's the message that you need to understand. God made you. God is creator. He created you in His image that you would love and enjoy Him. So God created you and He created this world for you to enjoy Him in this world. The problem is, not only that God... that the problem is not, is not only that God is creator, but he's also judge. And God judges us for our sins. And our problem is we've rebelled against God. And because God is the judge, he sentences us to damnation and condemnation in hell forever. The wages of sin is eternal death. God is creator and God is judge. But God is also Christ. God comes into the world, becomes a man, Jesus the Messiah. 
He lives the life we should have lived. He dies on the cross for sinners, and He rises from the dead so that He's not only um, Creator and Judge and Christ, He's also King. As He rises from the dead, He's exalted as King so that everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ as their King, their Lord, their Savior, their treasure, you'll be forgiven. You'll be saved. You won't have to be pierced in hell forever for your sins. Christ would have taken that piercing and that death for you. So I plead with you if you're not a Christian, repent from your sins. Repent from your goodness and righteousness and religiosity and trust in the King who was pierced for your transgressions, who was crushed for your iniquities, if you would turn and trust in Him. Repent and trust in Jesus. And then lastly, chapter 14, look to the final victory. Look to the final victory. We look to Christ, who is the humble king. We look to Christ, who is pierced for our transgressions, and we look to the final victory. If you read chapter 14, I'm just going to describe it. I'm not going to read it to you. Read it later. It's like Revelation 21, 22. It's the new earth. It's the final kingdom. I'll just tell you what happens. God gathers all the nations against Jerusalem. There's this final battle, and then God wipes out the nations. The Lord fights against them. And then God, I love this. I remember when I was in Israel, we actually stood in Jerusalem and we looked at the Mount of Olives and we read Zechariah 14 because it says God will set his foot on the Mount of Olives and, it'll, and the mountain will split in two. God will come down and set his foot on the Mount of Olives? Jesus has returned. And so here's God coming down to the Mount of Olives. There's gonna be no, no more night. There's only gonna be light. There's no more day or night in one sense. It's all light. That sounds like Revelation 21 and 22. There will be a new Jerusalem. There will be a final battle. The nations will survive and either worship him or they'll be, they'll be cut off to their consequences forever and ever, which we know in Revelation is the lake of fire. And on that day, everything in that new earth, that new Jerusalem, every single thing will be holy. Spoons, forks, knives, clothes, people. There will not be one thing that is not holy in that new Jerusalem. That's looking forward to the day to come. And they were looking forward in Zechariah's day for that day. Are we still looking forward to that day? Yes. Christ secured that day in His life, death, and resurrection. It's already secured. In one sense, it already happened in Christ. And now it's being applied here today, even, even here in this church. But it's not finally here. When Christ returns, we'll be in a new earth, no more tears, no more crying, to reign with Him forever and ever and ever. And so the saints all around the world say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So let me summarize the book. In a broken world of disappointment, live hopefully. How? Turn to God. Secondly, work courageously to build the new covenant temple. And thirdly, look to God. Look to Christ. Look to His return. That's how you live hopefully in this world. Now our problem, and to our great embarrassment even as Christians, we often live hopelessly, don't we? And it's even, it's unnecessary. We live unnecessarily hopeless. We don't even have to live hopeless. We just do. We don't turn to God and give our hearts to God regularly in repentance and faith. We don't courageously build the temple. We, we fold back in fear or we build other things and other projects in our lives, but not the new covenant temple of God, the church. And we don't look to the new earth. We don't live for eternity oftentimes. We're so stuck and focused on the problems of today, which you need to see, that we, we lose sight of the, of the new earth to come the return of Jesus. So we live hopelessly. And because of these sins, these are sins, 
to not turn to God. It is a sin to live hopelessly, to not turn to God, to not work to build up the temple, to not look forward to God's coming. That is sinful. And for that, we deserve damnation. We deserve to be hopeless because we live hopelessly. But Christ lived hopefully, didn't He? He always turned to God. Even in repenting for our sins in the waters of baptism, when John the Baptist baptized him, he turned to God and looked to God. He built the temple. His body was broken as the temple that he might build the temple. And he looked forward to the, king, to the kingdom to come. So he was willing, even for a moment, even on the cross for three hours, to drink the cup of God's wrath, to be a temple that was broken, to be truly and you'll never experience this if you're a Christian, to be truly hopeless for, in darkness for three hours. True, full hopelessness for that moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Zero hope in Jesus' experience for three hours hanging on the cross under the wrath and judgment of God, not for His sins, but for ours, so that we could live with hope so that we would not unnecessarily live hopelessly. Praise God that Christ is our hope because He became hopeless that we might live hopefully. So when you feel hopeless, remember that Christ came in the past for us and Christ is coming in the future. And then cast your cares, your worries, your disappointments, cast your hopelessness on Christ who is our hope. That's my call. When you feel hopeless, don't deny your hopelessness. Don't just start watching TV and filling your mind with distractions. When you feel hopeless, cast your cares and your hopelessness on Jesus and do it with your church family. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. So go to Him with your hopelessness because He is for you and He is coming soon. And so we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment now to reflect on your own and pray. And then I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, come soon, we pray. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And until you do, help us to turn to you again and again, repent from our sins, trust in you afresh with our hearts. Help us to work courageously to build up this local church and other churches as you determine for us. And help us to look to Christ who died for us, rose for us, and is coming again. Help us to live with your hope. And help us to cast our cares and disappointments on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.